Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 25 as we make our way through. We've been working on the Olivet Discourse for the last several weeks. So Matthew 25, verse 31, I've entitled the message, The Judgments. Now when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from the other as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. If you look at chapter 26, the first two verses, it begins by saying, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. The all these sayings is chapter 24 and chapter 25. The next thing it tells us is the time that the Olivet Discourse was given. It tells us, you know, that after two days is the Passover. So this is just a couple days before Jesus is going to be crucified. Therefore, it makes it probably his last teaching. And sometimes... Um, the Lord knew his end. He said, for this purpose, I came into the world. And um, he is giving to his disciples uh, information about what is going to happen to them. If you go back to um, Matthew 24, which is the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, he's explaining to them um, what is going to happen because reality has just set in for the disciples. Up till this time, they were sure that we're going to Jerusalem, even though, remember, five times in Matthew's gospel, he says, look, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be betrayed, I'm gonna be scourged, I'm gonna be killed, and I'm gonna rise again the third day. He told them five times. But they still were bickering and arguing amongst themselves. When we get to Jerusalem, Who's going to sit on my right hand and who's going to sit on my left and who's going to have who's, what responsibilities? They wouldn't let it settle in. They heard what they wanted to hear. But now he had just told them as he pours his heart out in verse 37, um, he goes after the scribes and the Pharisees in chapter 23, but he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, and stones the ones who are sent to her. I wanted to gather your children together even as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. You would not come. And then he said, see your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At, from this moment on, reality check for the disciples. And he begins in verse one and two to tell them that the temple would be destroyed. And if the temple was destroyed, therefore there's not gonna be a kingdom. And now it puts the disciples in question mode. It was in planning mode. We're planning and ruling and reigning in the kingdom with the Lord. But now he's telling us that the temple is going to be destroyed. And that prompted them in verse three to say, okay, if that's the case, Lord, and the temple's going to be destroyed, then, verse three, um, it says the disciples came to him privately. 
Uh, one of the reasons that we study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is here it tells us disciples. When you get to Mark's gospel, I think it's chapter 13, it tells us it was Peter and Andrew and James and John. It gives us more information. So Peter and Andrew and James and John, they ask, well, Lord, then when will these things be and what will be the sign? Notice it's singular, not signs, but it is a particular sign um, of your coming and of the end of the age. He begins with um, answering the second question first by saying uh, these are events that are going to happen at the end of the age. And he starts talking about wars and rumors of wars, a lot of false prophets, a lot of false teachers. Um, there will be pestilence and earthquakes and famines in various places. And he then goes ahead to a specific event in verse 15, an event called the abomination of desolation, because uh, they want to know what's going to happen at the end of the age. So now we're right in the very middle of the tribulation period. And we know that because Daniel 9 tells us in verse 27 that the Antichrist will go into the temple in 2 Thessalonians and declare himself that he's God. Well, that means that um, Israel will have to be regathered back into the land because in um, 70 AD, they were dispersed into all the world. That's when verse one and two took place when there was not one stone left upon another. That happened 38 years later after Jesus said it here. So now he's talking about um, this event called the abomination of desolation. In parentheses, whoever reads this, understand. That means you have to have a really good understanding of the book of Daniel. And he tells them where to go. Um, Isaiah 16 tells us um, that they go to Selah or Petra, also Basra. And uh, from verses 17 to 26, he tells them when you do it, make it quick. Don't go back into your house. Don't wait for a train whistle. Don't do any of that. Just get out of Dodge as quick as you can. Timed it perfectly. Good timing. And then he reminds them um, about in verse 27, he, after the tribulation, he says, immediately after that, I'm going to return. That's what verse 29 says. They will see the Son of Man coming in heaven. So he's telling them about the end of the age, and then a change of thought in verse 32. And verse 32 is the parable of the fig tree, which um, we talked about in detail last week, and um, also the rapture of the church. In verse 36, no man knows the day or the hour when the Lord will come, not the angels, my father only. First service, I mentioned that because of Daniel 9 and Nehemiah 2, we know to the day when Jesus came the first time. And because of Daniel 12, we'll be there a little bit later in the study, we know the exact day of the second coming. So this can only refer to the rapture. The rapture is what we call imminent. It could happen at any time. Um, I wish it would happen today. <laughs> We have this, those stickers, perhaps today. I wish it was today. 
And um, I think one glimpse of heaven, and we'd all say, I wish it was today. And that brings us, um, as we get to um, this, the main message that the Lord is wanting us to be aware of is just to be watching, to be ready. And that's what the, the parable of the ten virgins are, if you were here on Wednesday night, that we went through verse by verse. And then when the Lord returns, that brings us to uh, this morning, I would like to talk about the judgments that are in the Bible, at least five major ones. I want to talk about the flood. I want to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. I want to talk about the judgment that we have here, the judgment of the nations. And then the great white throne judgment. And then the greatest judgment of all is the judgment that happened at Calvary. You guys ready to jump in? Ready or not? Here we go. Let's turn to Second Peter chapter 3. Peter talking about the attitude that would be prevalent in the last days, says in 2 Peter 3, 1, Behold, I now write you to this second epistle, in both which I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remember, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And know this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts, saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Same old, same old. It's the same every day. You Christians, you crazy Christians talk about the rapture and Jesus coming, but everything's the same day by day. Verse five, for this, and I have this word underlined, they willfully forget. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So they are willfully forgetting. Oh, they've heard about the flood and they try to maybe explain the flood away. But the reality is, and we're gonna have Russ Miller with us uh, um, for the Prophecy Conference, and the text that I'm reading right here right now is his text. And one of the highlights is being with Russ for three or four days, not only giving biblical proof, but scientific, overwhelming scientific proof of a worldwide flood. Uh, The Grand Canyon is one mile deep. And uh, but most people don't realize that when you're standing at ground level looking down, it was also one mile high. And that blows people's minds when you tell them that. But the archaeological evidence for that exists. And um, he actually, it's called the Grand Staircase. And you start with Bryce Canyon, you go to Zion Canyon, and you end up in the Grand Canyon. And um, he'll be touching that, so a little advertisement for the Prophecy Conference. That's going to be his, his topic. And um, so then it goes on to say, as we're going to look at the flood, but, but the world that that existed perished with uh, flood with water, but the heavens 
and the earth, which now exists, are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So the scientific fact is out there. Um, They don't want to believe it. And here is a good argument uh, for people exercising their free will. Uh, So much for reform theology, so much for Calvinism, which takes away your free will, you have none. You're either predestined to heaven or you're predestined to hell. And um, you can disprove it so many ways, but here's just one verse right here. They have a will and they choose to forget that God destroyed this planet or this world at one time in the flood. So let's make our way back to Genesis chapter six and um, look at this event. We read in verse five that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent and thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And during this time, it tells us that Noah was faithful to his generation. Um, He probably ministered judgment that God was going to judge, and he did that for 120 years. And he had that many converts. Nobody believed him. God's going to judge. He was building this ark out in the middle of nowhere. And I'm sure the conversation probably went something like this. How is God going to judge us, and why are you building a boat out here in the middle of nowhere? And he says, well, it's going to rain. And the people would have said, what is rain? Because there was no rain yet. It had never rained before. First time there was a rainbow. And they blew him off, and I'm sure called him crazy. And yet, as we look at uh, Noah, it says he found grace, and him and his family. Uh, If you turn to verse 23, the flood did come in the 600th year of Noah's life. And in verse 23, so he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things, birds of the air, They were all destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Well, who were with them in the ark? I had a guy one time, um, I was at the Y, and I was in the steam room with this guy. And it came up, he wanted to know what I I did, so I, I told him. And he said, I got a question for you. Nobody's ever been able to answer my question correctly, so I'm gonna ask you. I said, go for it. And he said, how many of each kind of animals went on Noah's ark? And I said, well, there was seven of every clean kind and two of every unclean kind. And he goes, I don't believe it. You answered it correctly. (laughs) When Noah and the ark came to rest, the Lord told Noah to make an offering. And if you only have two and you kill one of them, there's no more reproduction going on. 
It's two of every unclean kind that went into the ark and seven of every clean kind that went in. So when he made an offering and he killed one of the clean ones, you still had uh, three sets of pairs of, of six. So he was surprised that I knew that. I said, he said, how did you know that? I said, because I read my Bible. <laughs> That's what it says. But many people today just think it was you know, two by two. So who, who were in the ark? Well, Noah, his family, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and we have uh, the animals. And between services, somebody was telling me that they went down and saw the ark at Ken Ham's, and some of you actually have gone down there and worked on it. It's an unbelievable structure, um, and perfectly made uh, for simply just floating. Um, while we're here, I just want to point out, remember Jesus said, search the scriptures because they're all about me and the volume of the book is all about me. So he asked the question, is Jesus in this story of the flood? And I think he is. And um, we find here in verse 16, those that entered male and female, all flesh, went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut the door. So once everybody's in, it was God himself that shut the door. If you were here on Wednesday night, I made a point of that, that the, the 10 virgins, five were wise and five were foolish, but when the five wives ones went in, it says the door was shut. There was only one door on the ark. The ark was the only means of salvation before judgment. And we find that I believe Jesus is a type of the ark. In John's gospel, there's seven I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the good shepherd. And then he says, I am the door. So he's a type there. He's the only way that you can be saved. And then um, what I find interesting is as judgment is being done, Noah is taken up. And when judgment is over, he comes down, and in chapter eight, it says the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. But it gives us more information than that. It tells us the date that the ark landed. If you look at verse four, it says the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. The seventh month is called Nisan. Remember when we started the study, I had you turn to Matthew 26, and Jesus says it's gonna be two days till the Passover. That's how we started our study. So he gave the Olivet Discourse two days before Passover. The Passover would have been on the 14th of Nisan, the 14th day of the seventh month. Now, this is the 17th day, in other words, three days after the 14th, Jesus died on Passover, anything of significance happened three days later? Do you see the connecting of the dots? I believe Jesus really is a type. And when he says the volume of the book is about me, that information is recorded for us. Why tell us? Why tell us unless there's a treasure in there that can be dug out? You go, wow, that's no coincidence. Anybody thinks it's a coincidence? Good, then I'll keep teaching. <laughs> All right. Um, First judgment was worldwide. It was complete, and only Noah and those in the ark were saved. 
Let's turn in the New Testament to the next judgment, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which really isn't a judgment at all. 2 Corinthians 5, picking it up in verse 5, I read the first five verses at every funeral because of the certainty that Paul has that when this tent is destroyed, we, we know that we have this home not made with hands eternal in the heavens, the certainty of knowing. And then he says in verse five, now he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, meaning this new body, who has given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Therefore, we're always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And because of that desire, he goes on to say, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Here is the second judgment we'll talk about this morning. It's called the judgment seat of Christ, and I remember reading that for the first time, and I thought, well, wait a second, what's this good and bad stuff? all about. I thought when I stood at the judgment seat of Christ, it's really dealing just with not my sins, but actually rewards. So what's up with the good and the bad? For that answer, you need to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And while you're turning, let me say, say this. Many times we do things for the Lord, and um, the Lord says, no, when you do a good work, he says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, um, because your heavenly Father, who sees in secret, he's gonna reward you openly. But if you do your good deeds before men, well, you got your reward so you won't get it later. So what I believe the Lord is talking about good and bad, you may do something for the Lord, but your motive might be completely wrong. Remember Simon the Sorcerer in Acts chapter eight? He really wanted the gift of the Holy Spirit and he actually offered money to Peter and John if he could give them the Holy Spirit. And um, Peter rebuked him. He says, you're not gonna get it. Matter of fact, you're in big trouble. He wanted it because before he was baptized, I like to call this guy the big man on campus. Everybody was drawn to him because they thought he was somebody special. Well, now he wanted to be somebody special again and his motive was completely wrong for wanting the Holy Spirit. Is everybody with me? So let's say that he continued to uh, repent and maybe gets to heaven in the judgment seat of Christ. And what we read here what I believe this is talking about is why you do what you do. I'm told in Matthew 7 not to judge Pat here. Pat comes up every Sunday. He says, the Lord bless you and your wife. He says it to me every single Sunday. Now they know, Pat. (laughs) 
And I, I love it. I know it's coming. And um, it's, it's just a blessing. But I'm not to judge him because I don't know what's in his heart. Um, you don't know what's in my heart. That's why Matthew 7 says, judge nothing before the time. Why? Because I don't know what your motive is. I don't know why you do what you do. But there is one who does know. And it doesn't mean that we don't, it also goes on to say that the spiritual man judges all things. If I don't expose false prophets, we're talking about eternal judgment this morning, if I don't call Rob Bell out by name and say he's a universalist and doesn't believe there's a heaven that everybody's, or a hell that everybody's going to heaven, if I don't tell you who he is, I'm not a very good shepherd. And that's who you're supposed to look out for. And he's just one, really, of many that would hold to that particular doctrine. Verse 11, the judgment seat of Christ. No other foundation can anyone lay that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on his foundation, now here's the works. Gold, silver, precious stones, then there's wood, hay, and stubble. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. In other words, the motive, what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, well, he'll receive a reward. But the all-seeing fire here is really the eyes of the Lord who sees everything and he can also see the heart. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. And this is what it means, good or bad, from 2 Corinthians 5. Because his motive was wrong, um, he won't receive a reward, but he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. So here's people at the judgment seat of Christ, which isn't really what it's called. It's really called the Bema seat. The meaning of the Bema seat judgment comes from a, um, the Greek word uh, bima, translated judgment seat, in the New King James, or in the King James Version, uh, was a familiar term to the people of Paul's day. Dr. Lehman Strauss writes, in the large uh, Olympic arenas, uh, there was an elevated seat on which the judge of the contest sat. After the contest was over, the successful competitors would assemble before the bima to receive their rewards or crowns. The bima was not a judicial bench where someone was condemned. It was a reward seat, and likewise, the judgment seat of Christ is not a judicial bench. The Christian life is a race, and the divine umpire is watching every contestant After the church has run her course, he will gather every member before the bima for the purpose of examining each one's and giving the proper reward to each one because he will know the motive. So when I read things good or bad, let's set the record really clear, it has nothing to do with your sin, but rather the motive that you have in your heart in serving the Lord. It goes on to say that the purpose of the Bema Seed is not to punish believer uh, for sins committed either before or after salvation. The scriptures are very clear that no child of God will have to answer for his sins 
after this life. And Psalm 103, we'll be there in two weeks. Um, He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Then in um, Isaiah, thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. Isaiah again, I have blotted out thy transgressions and thy sins. And then in Micah 7, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And then in Hebrews for I will be merciful and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. The judgment seat of Christ is all about reward day. And really we should look at this with incentive because the fact of the matter is you can't take anything with you. Um, Judy and I discovered a place yesterday it's an old antique shop. And man, I've never seen so many antiques in one place in my life. And we were in antique overload looking at all this stuff. And we left with stuff. <laughs> and I got reminded as I got home and, and reading that all this stuff ain't going to take us with us. Not one bit. You can't take any of it with you. When you go... Um, you can send it ahead by laboring now for the Lord because that will endure. But everything here is going to burn. Second service, I can tell a Chuck story, right? Chuck never had a new car in his whole life. And a guy in his church says, look, I don't want you to argue with me. I'm a car dealership. You're gonna come down and you pick out a, a car. Don't argue with me. You gotta hear Chuck tell the story. So he goes down and he says, anyone? He says, anyone. He says, I'll take that 58 hard top convertible. There's a picture of it in the back in the fellowship hall. Yes, a hard top convertible. It actually folded back in 58 into the trunk. And so his son-in-law wanted to take it for a ride, so he, he let him. And when he came home, there was a scratch all the way along the front of his brand new car that he hadn't even, somebody had taken a key while it was parked all the way across. And Chuck freaks out. He tells the story about getting in the flash, freaking out, he's ran in his car, it's got this key scratch in it. Son-in-law said, it's gonna burn. He said, thanks a lot for reminding me. <laughs> it's the truth, it's gonna burn. You can't take it with you. And um, um, here, as we look at verse 15, Uh, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Everyone at the judgment seat of Christ is saved. It has nothing to do with your sin and your shame, Um, especially if if you're a person who's prone to be hard on yourself. Um, uh, Romans 8.1 says, if you're in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation. Isn't that a great word? No condemnation. Uh, You can condemn yourself, we often do. The devil's always, what do they call him? 
the slander, who slanders you, it says, day and night before the throne. That's what he does on a daily basis. And you call yourself a Christian. And you can listen to that stuff, but we're told not to. My Bible says I have to bring every thought into captivity before it lets me affect me anyway emotionally. Does this thought line up with what the word of God says? Well, you're a crummy Christian. You blow it all the time. Well, yeah, I know I am. But I also know it says that if I confess my sins, then he's faithful and just and to forgive me on a daily basis. Paul said it earlier. Mercies of the Lord are new every single day. How can you, how can you lose with that? Then there's Romans 8, 28. He's gonna work all things. Some things? No. He's gonna work all things out together for your good. So when the condemnation comes in, stop, pause, bring it into captivity. Does that line up with the word of God? And if it doesn't, say, get off off my shoulder, devil. Take a hike. Where was I? In Matthew. (laughs) The judgment seat of Christ, no condemnation. It's not about your sin, it's about reward day. Let's go to our text, where our next one is this morning, Matthew 25. If you look at Matthew 24, verse 29, remember the disciples wanted to know what it's going to be like for an, in the last days. Well, now Jesus is telling them about his second coming. But notice it says, immediately after the tribulation, So we know that there's a tribulation period of seven years. And immediately after the tribulation, the sign of the Son of Man appears in heaven. So now we have an order. We have the abomination of desolation right in the middle. We have Israel calling on the name of the Lord at the end uh, after the battle of Armageddon. The Lord returns. And when the Lord returns, we read in verse 31, our next judgment is going to be the judgment of the nations. Now, think this through with me. In Revelation 14, three angels fly in heaven. One preaches the everlasting gospel. The second one gives a warning um, uh, about Babylon that's gonna fall. But the third angel goes and he gives a warning that if anybody takes the mark of the beast, he's gonna be uh, cast into outer darkness forever and ever and ever. And it's a warning shot across the bow to anyone who's alive that hasn't taken the mark of the beast yet. Now, in Revelation 13 it says, if you don't take the mark of the beast and worship him, then you'll be killed. So a lot of people won't take the mark and they will die. A lot of people will take the mark and they'll live. But that period of time comes to an end. Immediately after the tribulation, Jesus returns. Well, we can't start the kingdom age yet. Why? Because you have people that are still alive from the tribulation period. Uh, To fit this together, turn turn to uh, Daniel chapter 12. And the last, this is how the book of Daniel ends, the last three verses. And it gives us a time frame of what happens when the Lord returns at the second coming. We read in verse 11 of chapter 12, 
And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. I'm absolutely persuaded that the two witnesses who live for the first three and a half years will be quoting this scripture quite often, warning people, when you see this event, just like Jesus warned them, when you see the abomination of desolation, run. Don't go back into your house for anything, just take off. I'm sure the two witnesses are going to be telling people who are undecided, I need to feed my family, I'm tempted to take the mark. Um, And the Lord is saying, don't do it. Angels are saying, don't do it. Well, if you count 1,290 days, when people see the abomination of desolation, they can start marking their calendar off because 1,290 days later, the Lord's returning. This gives us the, the, to the day when the Lord's coming at a second coming. But then it says, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335th day. Um, if you do the math, um, and take 1,290 from 1,335, you have a 45-day period of time, and if you make it, then you're blessed. All right, now let's go back to Matthew chapter 25. We have people still alive that made it out of the Great Tribulation. This judgment of the nations here, the judgment... Um, that we're looking at here is evidently a period of time where the Lord is judging and um, it it says the, the sheep on his right hand will enter into the kingdom, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Evidently, the kingdom age begins 1,335 days after the abomination of desolation. And they're blessed. Why are they blessed? Because they did not take the mark of the beast and they will be able to enter in. And for the next, according to Revelation chapter five, um, we have the church in heaven. If you're taking notes, it's verses nine, 10, and 11 are actually singing a song about what they're gonna be doing for the next thousand years. I'll quote it. The church is singing this song. Uh, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So that's what you're going to be doing, gang. You're going to have... um, positions of prominence and authority, and you're gonna rule and reign with the Lord. That's why they're blessed. Now, on the other hand, you have the goats. And to the goats, um, he says at verse 41, he will say to those on his left hand, the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, The difference between the two groups is the Lord said, I was hungry, you fed me. I was in prison, you visited me. I was naked, you clothed me. And those that were good said, well, Lord, when, when did we do that? 
And he said, well, if you've done it unto the least of these, then you've done it unto me. In the first service, I got a little sidetrack here. I, I brought the, um, the first service up to date with what has happened, uh, tragedy in Haiti. Haiti is the poorest um, um, country in the Western Hemisphere. And, um, you know, we did a lot of planting, did a lot of plowing this year, corn. And we got the corn and the seed in, the problem was no rain. And if you don't get rain in rural Haiti, you die. It's really that simple. Well, then we got an email from Bastia last week, and uh, the rainy season started, but it was, had a terrible lightning storm. And a 17-year-old girl and her 18-year-old um, brother were both killed, and they're both part of Calvary Chapel, Carnet. And after I said that during the first service, Joshua actually brought down a picture and actually said, this is who, who he's talking about. So I bring it up because many of you have been so generous. And when we read verses like these, and uh, you're having a heart uh, for people who have nothing. And um, when they hurt and they lose loved ones, you know, we, we were all taken back by that. <clears throat> Can't imagine what mom and dad are going through after an experience like that. But then there's those, um, the sheep that really are indifferent. They only care for themselves. They only talk about themselves. And to these who have taken the mark that are still alive after the tribulation, he says, I was thirsty and you didn't give me any drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And they'll say, well, when did we see you naked or a stranger and not do that? And the Lord says, well, inasmuch as you did it not to the least of these, you did it not to me. These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. The third judgment this morning is the judgment that will take place immediately after the tribulation and right before we enter into the thousand years. Let's go to the last one, second to last one. You need to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. A thousand years has come and gone. And we read in verse seven, this blows my mind every time I look at this verse. Now when the thousand years has expired, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations. And he will, uh, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. And I go, you gotta be kidding me. Um, First of all, Satan has been bound for the last thousand years. And he's not bound now, I sure wish he was. He's given me more than my share of trouble on this world. (laughs) And, uh, but the fact that he's released, why release him, for what purpose? Well, everybody that entered into the millennium was saved. Of their own free will, believed on Jesus Christ. But a thousand years, longevity of life is gonna be restored. The curse is gonna be removed from the earth. People are gonna have children. And these children are gonna reproduce and they're gonna have children. And all these children have free will too. And when the Lord says he's gonna rule with a rod of iron, he's gonna be enforcing righteousness. But now the thousand years is coming to an end 
and we're almost to chapter 21 and going into eternity. And before we go into eternity with a new heaven and a new earth, well, maybe there's somebody that really doesn't want to serve me and love me. And so he provides an alternative by releasing Lucifer. If he could persuade one-third of all the angels to rebel against the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you think he's going to have any problems with people that want to be deceived? And it says to deceive the nations, and it's actually beyond numbers, the people that will actually follow after the Lord. Let me say this about psychology. First of all, I think Christian psychology is an oxymoron. Does everybody know what an oxymoron is? Jumbo shrimp is an oxymoron, okay? (laughs) Where do they come up with that one? Jumbo shrimp, that's crazy. Um, Psychology, 175 bucks an hour, and basically you get psychoanalyzed, and they like to start out by saying, well, let me just ask a few questions because I can see you're messed up, you probably need some medication, and uh, tell me a little bit about your life. Uh, What was your father like? What was your mother like? Well, you see, it's not your fault that you're messed up, it's really obviously your dad's fault. You're you're a victim. You're you're a product of the society that you grew up in. And this scripture right here blows it all away. Here you have the perfect ruler who's ruling in perfect righteousness. The curse has been removed from the planet and you still choose to exercise your free will against that? So much for psychology and so much for it not being your fault. If it's your fault, it's your fault. Good place for an amen. (laughs) Come on, a hearty amen. It is our fault. And these people here are exercising their own free will But eternity is about to start. So we have this judgment. Fire comes down from heaven and the Lord deals with them that quickly. And it's done and over with. Then one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They were cast in at the battle of Armageddon 1,000 years earlier. But the Lord had plans for Lucifer one more time And they will be uh, tormented day and night forever and ever. And finally, the devil himself uh, will get his due. Then, verse 11, I saw a great white throne. And him who sat on it, from whom the face, the earth, and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were open. And another book was open, which is a book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead. Now remember in Luke 16, the parable, of, it's not a parable, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man went to hell. He's still in hell. That was 2,000 years ago. And in another 1,000 years, 1,000 years plus seven at, at least, if the Lord would come today, uh, the rich man in hell is going to be taken out of hell, and he's going to stand before this judgment. 
Matter of fact, everybody who died in their sin will have their day in court. And it says they were judged each one according to their works. Well, what does that mean? Every thought you ever had that was evil, every time you stole something, every time you lied, it's all written down. Things that nobody knows about, you're sure nobody knows about, God knows about, and he's gonna read them out loud. And um, there won't be anybody making their defense at this court because they'll be guilty as charged. I mean, if, if we can record something today and, and look at it, uh, don't you think our all-wise creator has everything down? He'd probably be able to show it if he, if, if he desires to. My point is, there's no hope. Your fate is sealed at this point. If you're at this judgment, it goes on to say, then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Uh, verse, uh, they were judged each one according to the works. Then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the, the final judgment in the scriptures. But the greatest uh, judgment that I'll close with this morning, you need to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 again as we wind this up this morning. The greatest of all of God's judgments. I was reading in my wisdom for today, uh, Pastor Chuck, and um, he comments on Psalm 22, verse 1. Something that I can't comprehend. There's no way I think any human being can put into words that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have always been and they will always be. They have always been together. They have never been separated. That is, except for some moments of time. And Psalm 22 is what Jesus cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Chuck's comment on it is this. Psalm 22 is a demonstration of God's foreknowledge of events. In this passage, God gives us advance notice of his plan for man's redemption by allowing his son to die this awful death of crucifixion. The gospel tells us that after Jesus had hung on the cross for about three hours, around noontime, the sky went dark. And out of the darkness, a cry was heard from the man on the middle cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' cry brings us back to Psalm 22, but it begs the question, why would God forsake his son at this critical hour? God is absolutely holy. Therefore, it's impossible for him to fellowship with sin. In that moment, when God laid my sin and the sins of the whole world upon Jesus Christ, the inevitable consequence occurred. Jesus was separated from God. He was forsaken of his Father for a time so that you would not need to be forsaken of God for eternity. Nothing brings greater peace and confidence to your life than when you recognize the Lordship of Jesus, surrender, uh, surrendering to his authority and placing your life into his hands. Not only does that decision bring you peace and confidence, 
It also brings you strength and endurance. The greatest judgment that ever happened happened 2,000 years ago on a place that we get our name from, Calvary, a place called Golgotha. If you're in 2 Corinthians 5, the great thing about giving your life to Jesus, and if you haven't done that, I invite you to do so this morning, is that you get a second chance. A lot of people need a second chance. A lot of us need a third and a fourth, and a fifth and a sixth. Verse 17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and all things become new. Now all things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And he's given to us this ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And now he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We have family, we have friends that are not saved. They're gonna go through the great tribulation. They're gonna have to choose to worship the beast or not to and the consequences that go along with it. I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. Even Hitler, as much as I love the Jewish people and the atrocities, um, the, the, the eternal torment, when you allow that to settle in, I don't want that to happen to anybody. But it will. And so here, we've been committed to do the imploring, the begging, and say, please don't play Russian roulette with your soul because we're talking forever and ever, heaven or hell, and time will tell which, which, what's it going to be. And we should prioritize ourselves in such a way that we understand what I like to call, Bruce Carroll wrote the song, The Great Exchange. It's verse 21, and I'll close with that this morning. For he made him who knew no sin, that would be Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took my sin, but more than that, he then gave me his righteousness. So as God looks at you this morning, he looks at you as though you've never sinned. And you have his righteousness. Now, all I have to say about that is praise the Lord. (laughs) And You can't love the Lord unless you realize what he has done for you. The great exchange. He took the sin because God loved the world so much. He loved you so much. You know why he loves you so much? Because unless you're an identical twin, there's only one of you. And we value something because of its rarity. And as far as he's concerned, there's only one of you. And Psalm 139 says, his thoughts towards you are more than the sands of the sea. Well, that's just an expression. No, God's eternal, and I take that verse literally. I think God thinks about you and has been thinking about you throughout all eternity. Doesn't the scripture say that he knew you before the foundation of the world? Yeah. So you've been around in his mind and thoughts for a long, long time. And he really loves you that much that he would pay that price for you.
Good place for an amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we consider the Olivet Discourse and your final words to the disciples that we're asking about your coming and the judgments that are entailed, help us understand, Lord, that you're completely holy, but you're completely just. And a just God demands justice for our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we love you so much for what you've done for us. We're so grateful. All we can do is offer to you the sacrifice of praise. And so we do so in closing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.